Today, my guest in the second part of our program, and we'll devote more time than normal to our guest because it's a conversation with remarkable minds. Uh, he is Dr. Paul Epstein. He's a physician and director of the Center for Health and Global Environment at Harvard Medical School. He's worked in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And we're going to talk about the climate changes on our planet and their influence on changes in our health and the future health of people. Let's now go to my guest who's standing by. Nice to have you with us, Dr. Epstein. Good afternoon, Gary. Good to be with you. I would first like to ask you if you have any clear statistics so far showing that the rise in illnesses and deaths can be associated with climate change and global warming. And although we can witness this in the developing world, most people say, well, that's over there. It's not here or in Europe. But could you address this, please? Sure. And, and let me just do a minor correction. I'm the associate director of our center. And then our publishers at UC Press will call me right away if I don't mention our new book, Changing Planet, Changing Health, written with science writer Dan Ferber. So to get to your question, there are a couple of diseases that uh, highlight where we're going with the impacts of climate change on our health. Lyme disease, for instance. Warm winters are key to the overwintering of ticks. And we've seen Lyme disease and reports go up eightfold in the last decade in New Hampshire, tenfold in Maine. It's throughout the state, all the way up to the border with Canada. This is even ahead of where our projections were because warming is occurring more during the winter and at nighttime, and also as one gets closer to the poles. So some of the biological responses, instead of being lagging, are in fact leading indicators. Asthma is another one which <clears throat> has more than doubled in the U.S. in the last 25, 30 years. And there are several things related to fossil fuels. And just more carbon dioxide is giving us more ragweed pollen and tree pollen. Ozone levels are up and they irritate the lungs particles from burning fossil fuels attached to the pollen help deliver them. And then because of climate change, summer, the whole allergy and asthma season has been extended two to four weeks in the northern hemisphere, depending on the location and the latitude. So those are two really ongoing issues that are increased by climate and by burning fossil fuels. I appreciate that. Thank you. One of the conundrums that we seem to be in constantly if we're in, involved in the environmental movement is the official position emanating from the official agencies is to downplay the significance of any worst case scenario that we're in effect we're conditioned to believe that nothing could get that bad but could you just take a moment and chart the severe scenarios of the climate landscape that we may be entering, and what could be some of the most severe scenarios in realistic terms? Sure. Well, it's a good question. Let's, if, maybe there's three categories we could think of the way climate could change. It could change gradually, meaning gradual warming. Second, it could come with lots more extremes and variability and 
wide swings among the extremes. And then the third is that there could be tipping points, as you alluded to, where the system itself changes. The key to understanding all of these is what's happening in the deep ocean. Since the late 1950s, when we first started tracking temperatures in the ocean, the oceans have absorbed 22 times as much heat as has the atmosphere and the continents. Another way of thinking of that is 95% of the last century's global warming is in the deep ocean. And that's what affects not just warming, but the extreme weather events. More warmer water evaporates faster. More water vapor is held in a warmed atmosphere. It's 7% more for every one degree C it warms. So there's a whole change in the water cycle. Water is warming, ice is melting, water vapor is rising, and this is creating droughts in some areas, which exacerbating droughts where they exist, but also leading to heavier downfalls, heavier storms. Katrina, for instance, for, for, for instance, if it occurred in 1980, would not have been as strong as it was in 2005 because the warm water and the warm water that feeds it and feeds Rita Wilma after Katrina is all building up, and this is the store that generates the extremes. Now, all this is also affecting ice cover. Both the warming of the ocean is melting Arctic ice as well as the warming of the air, and that is what could lead to some trigger points and some changes in the ocean circulation. And those are the things that this is the reflectivity of the Earth. About 30% of all the incoming radiation goes out because of the ice. If it goes down to 29, 28, more water, more warmth is absorbed in the water and so on. It's a positive feedback. And that's the kind of thing that could lead to some major surprises. But I think we don't need to look that far for what's happened in the last year and a half throughout the planet, including the U.S., we're seeing an exaggeration of natural events. And that's what's key here. This is natural variability and climate change acting together to affect our weather patterns. Recently, when I was in Texas, I noticed, because I owned a ranch in Texas, north uh, Texas, for quite a few years, and I noticed one season after the other, it became hotter and hotter. And I began to study some of the weather patterns there, and I just uh, saw the latest statistics that Texas is now in the longest drought in recorded history in the state since records were kept in 1890, and as much as 70% of the state is now without adequate water for its agriculture, for its animals. There's hundreds of thousands of cattle that have died. Grass can't grow, and hence hay can't grow. Timothy, Bahia, uh, alfalfa, and uh, wells are gone. And unfortunately, the rest of the country is not immune to this. Georgia is having it. North Florida is having it. Alabama is having it. And the largest aquifer in the United States, which is under the uh, Corn Belt, is going down substantially, and there won't be adequate water to continue having a corn belt. We're going to have another dust belt in about 20 years at the current rate of usage. And then when you have uh, Oklahoma and Nevada and New Mexico, much of uh, Texas, uh, excuse me, much of California are also in severe drought 
where we're not looking. We're just looking at the nice places to live. We're, we're looking at the income and the real estate values. But the basics, just is there water there to be sustainable, people are not paying attention to. Could you share with us how much of this is right in front of us? It's no secret, and yet we don't seem to be interested in this information. Well, you, you paint quite the picture, and it, drought is really the, the silent killer of this issue. And having lived in Africa myself, I've been in some really dense droughts that affect what people drink, their hygiene, their, what they grow. And I, what you're picturing here is a really evolving issue that we've thought about for years, food security. And water problems, many of the aquifers are overdrawn and underfed to begin with. This is going to exacerbate that. And food security, because of this, these kinds of droughts, because of the floods as well along the Mississippi and flooding farmlands and homesteads. And then what we've seen globally in the last year, Russia, the heat wave last year, knocked their wheat crop for a 40%. Pakistan had floods. Australia had floods affecting wheat. China now has floods after droughts. And we're facing already rising food prices. There are many reasons for that. There's more demand for meat. There's biofuel use. There's higher fuel costs. But it's the climate variability and the extremes that has really almost doubled the price of grains globally over the last year. And I, this, is, uh, re, this is related to political stability as well. So I'm, I'm afraid we're already seeing some of the things we forecasted for many years ahead, and you're right spot on that water and food production become the leading problems for us related to climate change. Water we can't live without, yet less than 1% of the world's actual water is clean, healthy drinking water, and we don't seem to be paying attention to this cycle and what happens when we deforest the Amazon, where in parts of the great Amazon, there's two longest rivers in the world, the, the Nile and the Amazon, um, and I'm doing a new document on the 12 tipping points, and you go down the Amazon now, you just fly over it, and you'll see that in some villages that historically have been right on the Amazon River, they're back uh, uh, 500 feet. And uh, it's because of the uh, change in weather patterns in no small measure due to the thousands of acres per day, the hectares that they're taking out of being rainforest, and then planting soybean to feed China's, uh, population, their meat and pork, and India's and uh, needs and other needs, and they don't seem to be paying attention. And their mind is, A, the Chinese are paying us above market value to rent land or buy land. B, there's an unlimited uh, amount of money to be made because there's more money uh, to get from China for mouths that need to have food, and they want the American diet. So we do take, you know, a million acres uh, in the next year and a half out of production, uh, or put it into production, take it away from being natural water reserves and carbon, uh, re uh, car carbon holding sinks. So what? And I'm saying, so what? Do you realize how much of this great Amazon you've destroyed, the species, the the medicinal value from the trees and the barks and the plants, the, 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 the people. And Americans are absolutely 
unaware that this is happening. And in fact, most people around the world are unaware that we are destroying some of the great creators of hydration, creators of of sustainability, we're taking them away. Could you address these not only there, but also China's massive need to grow at 10, 9, 11% per year without thinking about, are they able to do it in a sustainable way? Or have they done it in a way that's created one of the greatest encroachments of desert and desertification in the world? Could you address these, please? Sure. You, you know, I hit a lot of issues, and just to sort of be crass and gross for a moment, 80% of the carbon problem is burning fossil fuels. 20% of it is forests. And by taking down the forests, we are also affecting the carbon carbon dioxide that's left in the atmosphere, which is what absorbs heat and is responsible for the enhanced greenhouse effect. Now, what's happening in the Amazon of removing trees is also changing the local water cycle and contributing to drought in the Amazon itself, which then exacerbates the deforestation. Uh, yes, our agricultural practices and our need for food and feed and fiber is uh, coming to uh, a breaking point uh, with, in terms of land availability and water availability. And, um, you know, it's... <laughs> It, this is these are things that the climate community have pointed to, projected uh, for decades off into the future, but these are coming to fruition today, unfortunately, and we're seeing the economic impacts, we're seeing the grain price impacts, uh, we're seeing political instability in Uganda, in Burkina Faso. Much of the, a lot of what's helped, uh, a lot of what's exacerbated the the upheavals in North Africa and Middle East, food prices, fuel prices, these have all played a role. So I I, I do think we're we are really seeing the unfolding of this issue, and uh, we have to move to some major solutions fast that both stimulate the global economy and drive us towards a transition to healthy, clean energy systems. I have just two more questions. One will deal with the list of illnesses that you mentioned, but I would like to add a few to see if you believe that they're associated with climate change and global warming. And then last, give us your solutions. Our program prides itself on having positive solutions for all of our negative problems. Yes, we have to be honest about our problems, and I believe we have not been as a society, um, but we also then have to be vigorous about looking for all the truths that, that we can change this. So the first issue is, would you include malaria, cholera, dengue fever, um, which we now have a few cases in the United States, West Nile virus, uh, you mentioned uh, Lyme's disease. How about waterborne pathogens like Salmonella and pathogenic E. coli? Since already we are witnessing large storms and flooding, you mentioned asthma and allergies. How about malnutrition and the immune disorders associated with it? And particularly speak on <clears throat> this in the context of decreasing crop yields and the rising costs here in the United States. Well, you've again hit a lot of hot spots here in terms of the infectious disease. Warming affects the potential range of the conditions conducive to 
transmission of things like malaria, dengue fever, West Nile as well. And so one sees in the mountains of Africa and Asia and Latin America, for instance, exactly where glaciers are retreating, plant communities are moving up the mountains, and we're seeing malaria and dengue fever at high altitudes. So Nairobi is a mile-high city. It has malaria circulating, and yes, dengue fever has reached the Keys, and but we have pretty good control here of mosquitoes. I'm not sure that's the major issue. The other that comes with the warming is the extreme weather events, and flooding can generate clusters of the waterborne diseases like cholera or E. coli or salmonella, waterborne, rodent-borne like hantavirus, as well as spread toxins and uh, also mosquito-borne. So it's the warming that does the affects the range. It's the extremes that affect the timing, intensity, location of outbreaks. You're absolutely right. Malnutrition is a key issue that underlies all of our health issues. And you're right to come back to this. Public health is not just about the bugs that bite us. It's some, it has to do with the bugs that are eating some of the forests and propensity to fires and so on. But it's the underlying issues of nutrition, of water, of habitat, both in the oceans and on land, that underlie our public health. And these are the things that are most threatened by climate change. I do, I do have one last short question before your solutions part. By the way, for those of you who are just... Uh, uh, rounding out the end of this hour, listening on land-based stations uh, throughout the United States. Dr. Paul Epstein is my guest, and uh, his book is called Changing Planet, Changing Health, How the Climate Crisis Threatens Our Health and What We Can Do About It. And we will be continuing to conclude our interview uh, if you listen over the Internet at ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com. Now, my short question is this. One of my personal concerns is the increase in monoculture in agriculture, Monsanto, BSF, and DuPont. I believe that they had their way, without any resistance, biodiversity of food crops and plants would be way down on the list of priorities. How do you predict the increase over-reliance on pesticides, fertilizers, and the chemical industry to produce these chemicals in order to keep sufficient food supplies ultimately affecting the health of people and and including the GMOs, especially when you have flooding now and that flooding is carrying all of those pesticides and all those chemicals, whatever they may be, in genetic species in ways that we never would have seen before, including hundreds if not thousands of miles down the Missouri and, and the Mississippi that are flooding now. Well, again, you point to a major issue and with the crop pests that are affected by climate change, as well as the weeds that grow more with carbon dioxide, we're going to face more and flooding that fosters fungi. We may face the use of more pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides to control some of the impacts of, the, of, of what's going on. Diversity is clearly a protective measure for agriculture. And uh, monocropping certainly makes them more vulnerable. I, that's a perfect segue into some of the solutions. If, if that's fine, I'll move that way. Yes. Hello? Yeah. Okay. 
So if we think about solutions to this conundrum we're in, we can think of what we need to do and then how do we pay for it. In terms of what we need to do, we look at healthy solutions and there are we look through the health lens to understand coal and nuclear and oil and natural gas and fracking and so on. If we look at the positive healthy solutions, we need electric vehicles of all types. We need to plug them into a cleanly powered smart grid, and that's something we need to be building today, a smart, efficient, computerized grid. And then in cities, we need green buildings, rooftop gardens, tree-lined streets, biking lanes, walking paths, permeable surfaces, open space, public transport, and smart growth, all connecting them with light rail. Those are things that we could be doing today, and those would be healthy, they would stimulate the economy, and they would help launch these technologies for climate stabilization into the global marketplace. How do we pay for all these wonderful things? We need to find sources of funds that don't depend on nations because we're all facing debt and some even deficit and default. And we need to find a way of raising funds. The Europeans now are projecting a levy on currency transactions, which sounds complicated, but it's really the bets on money every day, which is about $4 trillion every trading day. And a little levy on that is what the Europeans are considering just for their own problems. But that kind of levy could generate hundreds of billions of dollars a year that could be used for illness, could be used for agriculture that's sustainable, and also for the clean energy transformation. I I appreciate those. Uh, One final thought uh, from my own side on this. I believe at some point we must look at how we can get people out of driving the cars as much as they do and flying airplanes and instead look at a a public service like taking one of the uh, Chinese technologies of their fast rails. If you were to go from New York to Florida, New York to Los Angeles, stops in Chicago, they're, they're able now to go between 200 and 250 miles an hour. They put, they employed people to get there. Think of the jobs we could create. Uh, think of how we could encourage people to use public transportation instead of private what that would do to save the public money and give them a convenient and safe way to get from point A to point B. We have not had such a program in a long time, and I believe that we need a national initiative to gain more understanding of the environmental benefit and overall cost benefit to us of this kind. Your final thought on this. Couldn't agree more. This is what we need for our health, for the economy, and to stabilize the climate. Thank you very much. I appreciate you being on with us today, Dr. Paul Epstein. Thank you, Gary. Pleasure to talk with you. Dr. Paul Epstein, speaking to him from Harvard Medical School, I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening. Have a nice day, everyone.